So the REITs and the institutional groups that have dominated those large markets, they look for stabilized. They'll do some value add, but they're not going to get their hands dirty. They're not, most of them don't develop. Most of them don't want to take over some mom and pop deal that is mismanaged and has a huge capex, like deferred maintenance issues. They want it stabilized. And if they're going to buy one of those types of deals, they're going to want a deep discount. And usually that's where you know, some of the, the smaller operators or, or medium-sized operators can can swoop in. Those would really be the deals to focus on because, because they're not competing with the REITs and institutional money. What's going on, everybody? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. As always, I am your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a multifamily and self-storage real estate investor. Today, our guest is Tom Flanagan. Tom is an expert in self-storage. He is a self-storage advisor or a broker and has been for the last 10 years. He has sold over $300 million of self-storage facilities and started investing in the space himself back in 2020. Today, we're going to dig into the world of self-storage, how he approaches the market, and who he works with so much more. So Tom, thank you for joining us today. Could you fill out your background a bit more for us and tell us more specifically where you're doing deals. Yeah, thanks, Taylor. Appreciate you having me on. Quick background, I actually started my career in investment banking and quickly found that I wanted to get into real estate, ran the whole gambit of it and found self-storage a little under 10 years ago. Joined a a group called Argus Self-Storage Advisors and have been with them the past seven years here. So where I operate out of, based in Minneapolis, I have a team. There's, uh, There's five of us and we cover the upper Midwest. So we got the Dakotas, Minnesota, Iowa, and typically we're representing owners and, and bringing properties to market. So that's when we talk about being a self-storage advisor or broker, what we're doing is producing deal flow for free investors out there. As you mentioned, I've also invested in the space uh, directly and as a, an LP, and I'm happy to talk about all those experiences today. I think when we first look at the self-storage market, when we're first starting to get educated on it, we don't necessarily have a picture of basically how diversified the space is from an investor standpoint, all the way from the mom and pops to the big guys, the REITs and everything in between. You deal with folks all along that spectrum. So can we dig into that from an educational standpoint and talk about everything from the mom and pops, to the mid markets to the REITs and what each of them are kind of looking for these days? Yeah, no, that's uh, it's a good question. I mean, starting from the very top, I mean, there's 60,000 self-storage facilities in, in the country. And as we know, if you know about self-storage, you know, it's highly fragmented. So the REITs, which there's one less now since we've had a, a large merger in the last year, they really control a lot of the, the big markets. They're going to dominate like Manhattan or, you know, if it's the Inland Empire, like out in LA, like those are markets where it's tough to compete as a, as a mom and pop. We do some of that. I mean, in Minneapolis, we'll, we'll do some, you know, institutional deals and, you know, and, but really for that next tier where it's the deals that are, let's call it 5 million and under or 10 million and under. And, a, and even from there, most deals, I would venture to say that at least half of transactions across the country are going to be under. 3 million and, and a lot of those even under $2 million. You know, we bring a lot of those properties to market. And, you know, so if you're an investor and, and maybe it's starting and, and talking about that is, is if you do want to go direct, you know, whether you're buying a deal from a broker or buying it as an individual, like if you're finding an off market deal, 
which, you know, hey, all the power to you. You know, as a broker, we don't mind that. If we see them all the time, people call on owners directly and it's a lot more work. You know, you have to produce your own deal flow, which is fine. And you, you really got to look at how you're going to operate the thing. So if you're going into this, you got to know what software are you going to be on? What's your CapEx budget going to look like? How are you going to manage it? How are, how are you going to do rentals? Who's going to be answering the phone? You really got to know that type of stuff up front. And then, you know, the modeling part is easy. I would say is it's easy from the sense that, you know, anyone can plug numbers into a spreadsheet. And I think the the thing that you see with experienced operators know that, okay, let's, you can do a base case, uh, a worst case and a best case. Once you've done this a couple of times and, you know, if, if you're able to co-invest with someone or invest as an LP, you can see how they do it is, is a great way to get your feet wet into it. You can see how these things play out and ultimately what you have in that spreadsheet isn't isn't always going to be what happens in reality. So the big guys controlling the primary markets, I mean, we can all picture the larger, more top of the market facilities that we see in most of these major cities that we go to just drive down a main thoroughfare and you'll see kind of the big brands along the road. When they're buying properties, what do they look for? And then we can compare that to the smaller mid-market and mom and pop operators that probably have more of an appetite for a heavier lift and more of an increase in the revenue. But the the big guys, are they looking for mostly stabilized properties or can they deal with some hair on the deal and some value add potential? Great question. Typically, the stabilized deals is what they're going to pay up for the most and that's, you know, they, they all want a stabilized deal. They want a portfolio. They don't want to buy a, a $3 million property. And I mean, we've sold REITs properties that are, you know, in that four or $5 million range. And that's really the bottom for them. You know, we've sold deals that are more in that 12, 13, $15 million range and, and portfolios to them that are, you know, considerably larger, you know, $80 million portfolios that, those are what they really want. So the REITs and the institutional groups that have dominated those large markets, they look for stabilized. They'll do some value add, but they're not going to get their hands dirty. They're not, most of them don't develop. Most of them don't want to take over some mom and pop deal that is mismanaged and has a huge capex, like deferred maintenance issues. They want it stabilized. And if they're going to buy one of those types of deals, they're going to want a deep discount. And usually that's where you know, some of the, the smaller operators or, or medium-sized operators can, can swoop in. And, and that's, those would really be the deals to focus on because, because they're not competing with the REITs and institutional money. So one of the things that I've seen since, since interest rates started going up in the earlier part of uh, 2022 is that obviously construction costs have remained high, but with interest rates going up, construction financing costs increased pretty considerably, and that impacted all types of real estate investing. But in self-storage in particular, with these deals where folks would buy and then expand, your overall construction budget, just the cost of doing the deal, has gone up massively since construction costs are still high and now construction financing costs are so much higher. Have you seen the same thing? Is that impacting the self-storage investment space and the prices that buyers are willing to pay and everything along those lines for these expansion type of deals? 
Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the expansion type of deals usually, I mean, make make sense also for those groups. So that's also something that those REITs and institutionals are are not going to want to do. They're not going to want to find a local GC and do that. You know, I, I do. Yes, the construction costs going up has slowed development. I mean, I think it was. I, I mean, there was a lot of development that got built that probably shouldn't have. That was probably financed in twenty one, twenty two. So I think, as you mentioned, like with rates starting to go up in twenty twenty two, I think that's that's really healthy for the market because self storage is fantastic. I love it. We love it. Wonderful industry, but it does have the Achilles heel of supply, and we've seen that. I mean, in Minneapolis, for example, we saw. Many submarkets where rent rates were at a dollar forty, a dollar fifty per square foot per month, and have gotten slammed down to a dollar or lower per month. So that's it, it. so back to that pro forma in your spreadsheet. If you were doing a development and you were penciling out a dollar forty rates in your building right now and, and opening up, uh, and, and now that's at a dollar, you might be in a, a little bit of trouble. And and ultimately, that's healthy for the market. And hopefully, that deal like that that I described just doesn't happen because that. That'll help all the other operators around there. So, wow. So, that is a pretty steep decrease in the overall revenues that operators are able to get in certain areas. Now, you mentioned the Achilles heel of self storage being supply. It's relatively easy compared to other assets to build self storage from a regulatory and cost standpoint for a lot of reasons. They're basically metal or concrete boxes with doors on them and not too complicated, really no plumbing to deal with. You could have climate control and everything uh, like that in certain facilities. But on that side of things, when you're analyzing a market, looking at a market to determine whether it's oversupplied, maybe you're advising a client or you're making a decision for yourself about investing, how do you decide whether you think a market is oversupplied or undersupplied. There's the topic of per capita square foot, but that varies depending on the market. Do you dig deeper? How do you approach that question of oversupply versus undersupply? Totally. Yeah. I love this conversation. I've had it with the gentleman who founded uh, uh, Radius, which is a good tool for, for looking at that. And, you know, if he was talking on this, he would say, you know, let's throw that supply per capita number out. And I, at first, I, you know, that seems all oh, that's easy to say. It actually prices speak so much more volume than they, than, than at square foot per capita. I mean, we see markets, I think like, you know, Billings, Montana has 18 square feet per capita, but it has fi- fantastic rental rates. I mean, we see that all the time and we see, you know, it happens where, and to the other, to the other side of it, where you see, you know, supply is, is, is actually pretty low, but it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that it makes sense. If the rates are also low, you know, in the market, it, I would be much more fixated on whether the market is achieving 60, 70 cents per square foot versus like a dollar, dollar twenties per square foot. That's a huge difference. And sometimes that can be very difficult to obtain, especially now with the revenue management systems and the way that a lot of the REITs and, and other operators have started to do the whole Hey, we're going to have this teaser rate for a few months and then, and then jack it up. And it's hard to, you pretty much, if, if one person in the market does that, it seems like everyone follows because they have to. So it can be very difficult to, to ascertain that, but I would definitely focus more on the pricing and realize pricing that self-storage facilities are getting versus the supply per capita. Okay. So you mentioned with these revenue management systems that folks are using, it can be difficult to figure out 
what their actual realized revenues are. How could somebody approach that? I mean, could you go on, say, a sparefoot.com and look at the posted rates, but that's not going to tell you exactly what they're actually getting on leased up units? I mean, how would you approach trying to analyze that figure and figure out the actual rates that properties and, and operators are getting in the local area in any given it's, market or deal? It's tough. I mean, you should do a rental rate survey, which which we do for owners all the time. Owners and developers, we do that. It's a free service for owners. If someone's like, hey, I'm thinking about developing in, you know, Des Moines, we'll look, we'll call every operator in a three mile radius and ask them what rates that, that they have. Cause they're oftentimes the web rates and the, what, what they say when you call are, are different. So at least you have two data points can help you ascertain a little bit more what the realized rates are. But there is that danger there that, you know, a group might be saying one rate and they're not actually achieving that. There's no perfect answer there, but I would use the data sources to radius, store track, whatever you can get access to and, and do, your, do your due diligence to try to find out. So you used to own your own rentals, but you made the decision to pivot into passively investing. Why? Yeah. And well, I, I definitely, I owned two duplexes and a condo three months ago. I now own none of those, which is great. It feels awesome. I don't want to deal with tenants directly and especially in multifamily. I mean, that's what we love about storage is it's, you don't have to deal with, with toilets and, and tenant improvements and all that jazz. Investing as an LP can be really great, whether it's in multifamily or in, in self-storage. Really, the, the, the shortest answer there would be because it's more of a way to build passive wealth versus be involved in getting your hands dirty. So when you're looking at a potential self-storage opportunity that you're considering passively investing in, what are some red flags or maybe green flags that you would look for, either bad things or good things that you would weigh when making a decision? Yeah, I think of it as a three-legged stool. So there's the deal itself. So let's say you're looking at a deal and it's in a market you like. And it's a growing market. You like it. They're getting it for a good price. Maybe they're getting it for close to replacement costs, 45, 55, 60 bucks a foot. And it looks like it's rates in the market are at 80 to 90 cents. They're, this facility is getting 60 cent rents and you, the operators can, can raise those rents. So you love the deal. That's one leg of the stool. The second is let's look at the deal terms because there's a broad spectrum and there's been a lot of discussion on it, especially on. On Twitter, I've uh, I've really enjoyed some of the, the discussion about how how these deals are structured because you're going to see a couple of things. You're going to see the preferred return. You know, oftentimes an operator will say, "Hey, we'll give you seven eight percent preferred return, something along six somewhere you know, something along those lines." And then there's going to be beyond that. What's the split? So if it's if it produces IRR above that, what percentage is going to the LP, you, the passive investor? And which side is going to the GP, the general partner or the sponsor of the deal. And we've seen that flip-flopped from oftentimes deals where 70% is going to the LP and 30% is going to the GP. We've seen that flip-flopped in a lot of ways. I've seen sometimes where the sponsor gets 80% of that upside and you, the LP investor, only get 20% of that. Now, if they're offering an 8 or a 9% preferred return, maybe you're accepting of that. 
And the other piece is, what are the fees that they're charging in here? Because ultimately, that whatever that preferred return is not guaranteed. And we've seen some of these groups happen. Some multifamily syndicator down in Texas went went belly up earlier this year, and that made a lot that made a lot of news. And you look at the way the deal was structured, and it's God, why would you invest in that? But clearly, a lot of people did. A lot of people lost a lot of money. And so the fees that are involved are they charging a four percent acquisition fee? That's a little steep a 2% asset management fee, a 6% property management fee, and a 2% disposition fee. I mean, my God, you're getting feed to death. And they say that brokers are the greedy one. <laughs> the third leg of the stool then is who's the guy? Who's the, who's the group? Who's the person that's actually sponsoring this deal? Where did you find it from? Was this an Instagram ad that popped up promising spectacular returns? And you really got to peel back the onion, do a background check on the sponsor. Find, talk to other investors who have invested in it if you can. I mean, you, you got to know who, who the person is that you're giving your money because like you, you just, you can't do a good deal with a bad guy. Okay. So you decided to invest passively rather than going and buying facilities for yourself and, and operating them. Why? Yeah. I mean, in, in, I guess the first one that I did, I really liked the deal. I knew the guides who had done it because I've sold them 13 properties before. And it was a deal out in Montana that I was like, wow, this is just, this deal's phenomenal. The terms were fair. And it turned out to be just a, a knockout deal. I mean, I invested 75 grand into it and, and received more than double of that back when they sold it shortly after. So Results not typical. That's not usually what you're you're gonna get, but easily that would be a, an example of one where I was like, "Oh, this," and that's passive. I mean, that, that's wild. I mean, that's that's not typical. I mean, of the I think seven or I think eight now deals that I'd be in as an LP, that would easily be the the best that I've done. So, as a matter of performance and deciding, you wanted to get out of the operator chair, no matter what asset class. Now that you've sold your rentals. In that particular deal, I just liked the deal. I mean, I, I, I do still invest directly. So I, I really do have, you know, both angles of views on it as a, you know, as an LP, as a silent investor, as, you know, a, a passive investor, as an active investor where I do, you know, I have invested in my own deals with some partners. And then also as a broker, I see a lot of deals, really do have a lot of different angles into it. So before we move to the three questions I ask every guest on the show, for folks out there that want to get more educated on the self-storage business generally, where would you point them for resources, news, industry, insights, and knowledge? Where could they go? I would just follow at Tom Storage on, on Twitter. That's all you need to know. There's my, my shameless plug of the day. Now, there's a lot of good industry sources out there. I do think that ISS, Insight Self Storage, offers a wealth of, of knowledge. Self Storage Twitter is awesome. I will say there's so many people on there that I've learned a ton of information about. I mentioned Corey Sylvester of, of Radius and the data that he puts out there. Um, there's a lot of good sponsors of deals out there that I really do enjoy. And it's amazing you can find them on, on Twitter. Everyone knows Nick Huber and, and, and his group and a lot of the others that are you know, really do provide a, a good amount of info. And then SSA, the Self-Storage Association, will be in DC March 12th for that. And then the Inside Self-Storage Show in Las Vegas, April 2nd, we will be there. And actually Argus Self-Storage Advisors will be celebrating our, our 30th anniversary 
We've been the largest self-storage national brokerage that's been operating for what will be 30 years in 2024. You know, certainly I do think we put out good information as well. Awesome. So much there. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Tom, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what is your number one book recommendation? I will have to go with The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. It's an oldie but a goodie. It really has stood the test of time, really has a lot of lessons within there, you know, that really encompass how to be the best that you can possibly be. Nice. Strong recommendation. Number two, who or what inspires you? You know, this is one where I think a lot of people have someone where they say, oh, wow, my this this person that they really admire. I have so many. I don't I feel like if I started listing names of of individual mentors that I would I'd list someone or I'd forget someone. And you know, like the founder of Argus, Ben Vestal, is fantastic. And I've been fortunate to have a lot of mentors, you know, in my life that are, have really helped guide me. Um what really inspires me though is just to be the best at that you can be. I mean, you only get one life and you know, there's there's a lot of things to do. And I think it's it's so easy to get complacent and to to not live life to the fullest. So I, I really get inspired just to self-actualization and, and growing, personal growth. So love it. Question number three, think about Tom at 80 years old. If you could speak with him, what advice would 80-year-old Tom give to Tom of today? I think he would say, relax, man. Like, just, just, just enjoy it. Like, sometimes I get so hung up on, on a deal and I'm a deal junkie, so I'm always looking at stuff. And, and sometimes like in the middle of it, I get, you know, I get, I'm passionate about it, you know, so I'll, I'll get a little bit, get a little bit uh, into it where I'm like, it's, it's nine at night and I'm, I'm just running through a deal in my head. I'm like, I, I just got, sometimes you got to turn it off and just sit back and, and smell the roses. So I think that's what 80 year old Tom would, would tell myself. Nice. Well, thank you for joining us today and sharing this knowledge about the self-storage industry. One more time, if folks want to get in touch or learn more about you, where can they track you down? Yeah. I mean, you can email me. I'm Tom at selfstorage.com. Easiest email you're going to find. I'm, I'm on Twitter, Argus Self Storage Advisors. You can find us. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm an accessible guy. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.